Hello again, everyone, and welcome to a special May Day edition of Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. Chris, it's May Day. Hello. Beltane. Yeah. The Spring Festival. Yeah. Uh, work. Yeah, it's time for us to talk about some May Day traditions of East Anglia. I thought that might be a nice, fun and topical thing to do. How do you feel about it? Seems like a good idea. You love May Day, of course, because that's when Edward Woodward got sizzled in The Wicker Man. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Your favourite event in cinematic history. <laughs> yes. There'll be no sizzling today. No? No. Mm. Not unless something goes horrifyingly wrong with the recording process. <laughs> we sizzle ourselves. Exactly. You know, a spark flies out from a piece of equipment. Or, uh, you know, our chat is so hot and fiery right. that it, Ignites. It, it it goes from metaphorically hot to literally hot and right. we burn up in a sizzling fire. I think it's unlikely. Yeah. And what good's it going to do anyway? What do you mean? Well, Edward Woodward's sizzling had a purpose, didn't it? <sighs> did it? Did it? <laughs> of course. Well, unless next year the crops did fail. <laughs> we don't and then know. No one less than the Lord of Summer Isle himself will do as a sacrifice. We should have said uh, spoilers for The Wicker Man oh, at the God, start yeah. of this. I mean, it, it was released a long time yeah, ago. Nobody, nobody doesn't know about it now. No. Anyway, so we yeah, we thought we'd have a look at some sort of location-specific traditions of May Day looking at East Anglia. And particularly today... Oh, Vin, what a squawking. Vin is very loud. He demands his say on the Edward Woodward meaningless or significant sizzling situation. I bet he prefers the remake. <laughs> no one prefers the remake, not even Vin. <laughs> even a small cat who has no opinion on these things. And yes, I'm using today a lot of Enid Porter's work. As we know, the brilliant historian who recorded much oral history of the East Anglian region and has written several books about Cambridgeshire and, and East Anglia more generally. So yes, Enid Porter, once again, is our god or goddess of the day. But would you like a drink? I've prepared some drinks. Okay. They do look alarming. It's my first attempt at making a cocktail, including an egg white. And I must say, the effect is somewhat currently that of a souffle <laughs> oh. one of them in particular i think i filled it a little bit too full and the foam the the white egg foam has begun to rise out of the top of the glass so i tell you what i will have that one because i know that egg isn't your favorite thing <laughs> and no. you can have the other one okay and also what i think is because of the quantity of egg white although mm. i followed the recipe i think it's too much we didn't have enough room to top up with fizz Oh, okay. Some fizz went in, but it's not, not as much. a bit of space in the top of there? Will it not Well, we can wazz a bit more fizz in. So what's in here is sloe gin, oh, uh, nice. lemon juice, sugar syrup and... Egg whites. Egg whites, and then topped up with Prosecco. Is this a recognised thing? Or yeah, you it's just, a uh, sloe gin oh, fizz. Oh, no, hello. Uh, I'll tell you what happened there. I tried to top it up with fizz, but yeah. the egg white had formed a kind of <laughs> impermeable barrier. So all that happened was the fizz went on top and then fizzed onto my legs. Yeah. And now anyway, you've got fizzy legs. let's see how we go with these. It's a slow gin fizz, and I'll explain why in about five minutes' time or oh, okay. less. Until then, I'll just drink. Mm. How do you get through this eggy layer? Oh, I sucked it in. 
Oh, it's quite nice though. It's sweet. Well, that's the um, that's the syrup, but the slow gin is quite um, tart. The slow gin's one we made ourselves, and again, I'll come back to that shortly. It's tasty. Mm, it's a bit. The the egg is a bit cream sodery, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's the idea because yeah. I've kind of wazzed it up with everything else. Right. Well, we'll start off in Water Beach. Oh, okay. Water Beach is a village just slightly to the north of Cambridge, between Cambridge and Ely. My older sister lives there, so I've been there perhaps more than some of the other villages around the area. And actually, slow berries that made this slow gin were picked in Water Beach. Oh, this isn't just, just thrown together. Just outside Water Beach. It's a nice uh, coincidence. So we're drinking Water Beach slow gin fizz. Enid Porter reports that Water Beach used to have its own May Day traditions. And you can see some points of similarity between them and those that happened elsewhere. But also, in some ways, they seem quite specific. Unfortunately, one of the main traditions of Water Beach for May Day seemed to involve being, I would say, unnecessarily judgmental and harsh towards the women of the village. Oh. I will explain more. And Enid Porter, is, she actually refers back to this book called The History of Water Beach, which was published at the end of the 1800s. When you say published it's well we're talking like a pamphlet aren't we probably like a parish pamphlet or something and it gathers together again oral history stories from inhabitants of the village and this account was given to the author apparently in the mid 1800s so it refers back we're talking pre-victorian may day is described as the grandest holiday of water beach in advance of the day the usual garlands would be prepared and of course this is something you see in may day celebrations Mm -hmm. internationally as well as as locally flowers ribbons leaves all kind of made up into garlands that would be put on basically everything (laughs) put those garlands on everything you can put them on people put them on poles put them on houses but this time in water beach they assembled their garland with a silver tankard oh lovely in the middle and silver spoons would be kind of like woven into the leaves and things as well and now now we come to it the night of the 30th of april the eve of may day if you will the young men of the village would go out at night to find some very particular plants and flowers here is a quote from um, the history of water beach they went into the fields to collect the emblems of their esteem or disapprobation i don't know what that word means disapproval hang on so that being the opposite of esteem exactly and what happened once these young men had gathered together these specific plants and flowers is that some of the women would awake on may day to find their front doors or doorsteps decorated with these particular plants and these plants would be distributed according to the particular okay. attributes. So this of is like a nineteenth-century snog marry avoid. <laughs> yes, yes, I suppose it is. Right. <laughs> so starting on the, I guess this is kind of snog and marry snog snogged into one, because mainly what they're doing is saying bad things about about mm. the women of Water Beach. So, one favoured young lady, I quote, whose amiable manners had entitled her to our esteem, she would find <laughs> <laughs> she was entitled to their esteem. Right. I was would, just trying to work out what amiable manners might be a euphemism for. Well, no, I think in fact it's not for what you think. I think it's um well, let's let's see. She would find a branch of white thorn planted by her cottage door. And what is white thorn? It's Hawthorne. Oh, okay. The, the May tree. Of Hawthorne, the May tree. So it pops up everywhere for May Day celebrations all over the place. Um, Hawthorne is. Because it's in flower at the time. Yeah, it's an early flowerer and it um, has these kind of masses and masses of these white flowers. And yeah, it, you find it 
is is kind of used to decorate houses in all kinds of May Day celebrations. So so that is used to label this lady as she's the one that we find to be the most appealing and the most amiable. We give her the May tree itself, the uh, the hawthorn. What about the less fortunate women of Waterbeach? Mm. What should they find on their doorsteps? Here's another quote. The girl of loose manners had a blackthorn planted by hers. The slattern had an elder tree planted by hers and the scold a bunch of nettles tied to the latch of her cottage door. I mean, this is assuming an awful lot about the intended's abilities to recognise these different types of tree. Someone stuck a hawthorn or a blackthorn in my front garden well, and not be able to tell the difference. Hawthorns and blackthorns are quite similar, but remember, these are village folk. They're going to know what the trees are. Here goes on the judgments. So the, the Lady of Loose Morals will receive the blackthorn. The slattern, which is like slovenly and kind of unkempt, a poor housekeeper, I suppose, she will get an elder branch and the scold will get the nettles the spiky, unappealing, brittle and bitter nettles. Now, what of Blackthorn? What of it? Do you know much? Uh, no. Apart uh, from the cider. <laughs> it's another hedgerow plant, so similar to Hawthorn. They often grow together, actually, and they can be quite difficult to tell apart. They both have white flowers. They so, both... so you could, sorry to interrupt, you could wake up on that morning and see something planted in your garden and be like, oh, brilliant, I'm, I've got the favour. Maybe. Whereas in reality, you can't tell the difference between a blackthorn and a Hawthorn. Oh, well, you could be really mistake. upset because yeah. you thought you'd got the blackthorn, exactly. but really you've got the Hawthorn. I'm thinking these village people know what they're about in terms of their thorns. But yeah, so the blackthorn also looks similar, white flowers, blooms in the spring, although at a slightly different time to the hawthorn. And it's named for its bark is a bit darker. Uh But what interests us about the blackthorn is what it is up to in the autumn months. Can you guess? Mm, Having some berries on it? Sure, but what kind? Poisonous ones? No, delicious slow. Oh, of course, right. Okay, yeah. So the hawthorn will grow the red berries, which the birds love, the little red berries. But the blackthorn, hooray, will grow us slow berries. Bitter slow berries. Yes, to pile into our gin and vodka and brandy and all sorts of things like that. So I found this to be particularly appropriate because, as I said, I picked these slow berries that made this gin with my sister just outside Water Beach. And these could be the very same plants, these very same trees that provide the the damning blackthorn branches back in the time of the uh, hideous May Day celebrations of Water Beach. <laughs> I bet Sarah McPhee's glad she hasn't got a front garden. Well, I might sneak and put uh, put some things on her on her doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> Just to see the look of terror on her face when she awakes. Yeah. And I wonder if, I don't really know. I mean, the blackthorn is associated in a lot of folklore with dark magic and witchcraft and Mm. things. And in Christianity, it's got kind of negative connotations. But I wondered if the association with the loose moraled women comes from the fact that it has the sleigh berries, which go into delicious booze. So that's fun. That's why we're drinking the gin fizz, the slow gin fizz with Water Beach slow berries, no less. And then nettles and scolding seems quite an easy connection, doesn't it? And I remember reading the book years ago, The Scold's Bridal by Minette Walters. It was made into a, I think it was like a BBC adaptation with Daniel Craig pre-Bond. Oh, yeah. The early days of Daniel Craig. And there's an old woman who's killed and she's found with her scold's bridle on. And it's got all like nettles like tied in amongst the scold's bridle. Do you know what a scold's bridle is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. like the iron round your face. Mm. And it's to hold your tongue so you can't talk, so you can't nag. But I'm not really sure about the elder tree. 
it seems like if you go to early pagan beliefs, actually the elder tree is associated with more positive attributes such as protection and healing and things like that. Right. But in Christianity, it's more negative. Um, something I read said that that's the tree that Judas hung himself from. This is something I found about the elder, though, that is quite interesting and has a very local meaning, local significance, is that Enid Porter says that elders and elderberry flowers were unpopular in the fens and they were thought to bring bad luck amongst the superstitious, apparently stemming from the fact that snakes and vipers which were rife in the fens back mm. in the day, would commonly coil up in the roots of elder trees. So they were a kind of a hazard that the elder trees would uh, signify a possible danger right. that there would commonly be these... Watch um, out if you were going to pick elderflower. Exactly, poisonous and vicious beasts. Not really vicious, they probably wanted to hide. Uh, so then it became a superstition that it was unlucky to have elderflowers or anything to do with elder in your house because of this connection with danger. So I quite like that. So I like the, the idea that that is maybe why you can't keep your house properly. Here's an elder branch. Yeah, you've probably got a snake called up at your Yeah, roots. exactly. There might be a snake under your oven. <laughs> it's warm under an oven. Or there's a snake in your knicker drawer, <laughs> coiled up waiting to strike. What a nightmare that would be. Once the men had, had gone around the houses distributing the branches and the, the plants and, you know, labelling and judging, labelling and judging, there would still be a bit of time before sunrise. And at this point, they would hoist up the garland with the silver tankard in the middle, hoist it between two chimneys so that it kind of hung above the street, the main street of Waterbeach. Two chimneys on opposing sides of the road. Yes, exactly. Right. Think of it as a gill net. I'm thinking of it like when you see a pair of trainers one's thrown mm. over a telegraph wire. Yeah, or um, the Christmas lights in Cambridge City oh, yeah. Centre. And then the bells would ring and the people of Waterbeach would awake to find possibly a insulting piece of wood outside their house. <laughs> Uh, and then later in the day, all manner of dancing would take place. Oh, yes. The classic May Day celebrations. They says they'd play a lot of ball games and sports oh. in the streets. Yeah, so that's a kind of uh, specific Cambridge one, very close to Cambridge, which is quite... I'm not going to say fun because it's quite unpleasant, really, if you mm, think about very it. Very judgmental. But, yeah, but the celebration later, and maybe they all took it in good sport. You might be like, oh, I can't wait to wake up on May Day and find out what twig I've got in my garden. Mm. I'd probably be a bit like, oh, I want the nettles. <laughs> You'd actively. <laughs> I'd be the scolding everybody in, in the in month. The, in the hope that nettles come All to your through door. April, scolding, 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 looking for nettles on my doorstep. And let's just just stick with plants for the for the moment. Okay. Let's consider the dandelion. Have you got any thoughts at this stage? <laughs> the dandelion clock, I know about that. Mm -hmm. Porter tells us... Dandelion and burdock. Sure. The fizzy drink of old. Yes. Porter tells us that housewives of the Fens used to gather dandelions on the 1st of May. In particular, they gathered them other times too, but they'd always make sure to gather some on the 1st of May for wine making. Well, I suppose that's a bit like dandelion and burdock. And the belief was that these dandelions would make the finest wine. Made the first dandelions. Yes, so they would always gather early in the morning. I remember a story when I was a kid that if you picked a dandelion and if you smelt the end where you had picked it, not the flower end, it would make you wee yourself. Are you just about to tell me this? No, I'm about oh. to tell you something which is almost exactly the opposite. So that's very peculiar. Oh, wow. So tell me again your story. Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, one of those kind of stupid childhood things. Oh, don't smell the wet end of a dandelion, you'll piss yourself. And did anyone test it? Did it happen? Oh, I'm sure, but I don't think anyone pissed themselves. No. I mean, there was probably at the age of four or five a fair bit of pissing yourself going on, but I don't <laughs> think the dandelions were to blame. 
<laughs> cause and effect couldn't be established clearly. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting. I've never heard that. But you have a lot of strange things from your youth that I've never heard of. Now, here's what I was going to say to you. The bright yellow flowers of the dandelion plant would be given to children to smell on this day, May the 1st. It was thought that this would prevent bedwetting. Oh, how funny. For 12 months. How funny. That sounds like, yeah, the, the, the same. Obviously, it's come from the same etymology. Yeah. It just got distorted through time. Yeah, So they, but they had to smell the flower specifically. Right. And it was the flower that they thought could then prevent the bedwetting. How funny. So I wonder if the story you heard is just a sort of like a bastardisation, yeah. Or is it to do with, I mean, I'm giving the school children of Northampton probably too much credit. I was going to say, is it that the... the flower will stop the bedwetting but the bad well, maybe, end I mean, will cause the bedwetting yeah, <laughs> I, I specifically i remember because when you kind of pick a dandelion and the stem gets a bit yeah matched, you get, you get a, a kind of, of milky juice don't yeah. you anyway so that's a strange belief that some east anglians had we need to find out more about this dandelion piss connection <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's a kind of natural diuretic or something yeah. in dandelion juice maybe we'll try and find out for next time now something a bit different moving to a different custom no more talk of judging women or pissing your bed. Now we will hear about May ladies oh. and the practice of May dolling. Have you ever heard of this one? No. Nope. This was a large part of East Anglian May Day ritual in lots of different villages through East Anglia. And it continued, Enid Porter suggests, up until the advent of World War One in some places and even in some places it continued a bit longer. But it kind of died out through the 20th century. The idea of May dolling was that the small girls of the villages would get their finest dolls and dress them in their finest dresses. They would then cover the dolls with cloth and perhaps put them into a basket or something like that. And then around the neighbourhood they went, asking each person they encountered if they would like to see the May ladies. <laughs> of course, everyone said yes. Of course. It's, it's the tradition. You're not going to say, no, I hate May Day, I don't want any part. Everyone said, yes, I would really like to see the May ladies, please. And thus the cloth would be pulled back and the finely attired dolls would be revealed. And then in return, the girls would be given small tokens or gifts such as coins or sweets. Oh, yeah. So like a penny for the guy type thing, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. But it's the May ladies. Sometimes the custom was slightly adapted and the baskets or rather sinisterly cages is one description of them. You would put the dolls into the cages or the baskets and they would be hoisted up again, like above the street <laughs> on some system of a pulley over like a branch or something like that. And then as people approached along the street, the cage or the basket of the May ladies be would be lowered down in front of them. So you're not just looking up the May ladies' skirts. But that seems a bit alarming to me. Well, I mean, it puts me in mind of, sorry to return to it, the scene in The Wicker Man when on May Day, Sergeant Howie is searching the village and uh, encounters a group of children holding a doll aloft, chanting, we carry death out of the village. But that's not what these people sang. No, but it's still a doll being paraded yeah. around on May Day. These children did have a song, though. Yeah. As the dolls were lowered from their lofty perch, they would sing. I don't know the tune, so I'm just going to read it. The first of May is Garland Day, so please remember the garland. We only come but once a year, so please remember the garland. Next, we will hear about the village of Melbourne in Cambridgeshire. And a lot of the things that she talks about, she has some particular contacts, I guess, who've, who've told her a lot <laughs> about like Melbourne. like some old village person. Um, but a lot of this stuff is general May Day shit that you'll recognise. Shit in the nicest possible way. Yeah, ephemera. The theme of Garland Day continues with the picking of cowslips, 
on the morning of May the 1st. And these cowslips were woven into garlands to be worn as crowns or necklaces. A traditional maypole, of course, on the village green. The phallic symbol, which is venerated in religions such as ours. Exactly. Hawthorn boughs would be placed on the doors of houses, seemingly just as a general decoration, not to signify this is the the favourite lady. (laughs) And of course, molly dancing and general jollity taking place. A procession of dancers in Melbourne would be led by a figure called Jack in the Green. Oh, yeah. Do you know much about Jack in the Green? Not a great deal. I think it's like a kind of straw bear type thing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like a dressed up in a load of, well, greenery, I guess, in this case, rather than straw. But. If you if you don't know about the straw bear, that you can go and listen to what we have an episode about the Straw Bear Festival in Whittlesea when Chris and I, pre-COVID times, went to the village of Whittlesea for their annual January Straw Bear Festival, which is uh, someone dresses up. Well, actually, there's three straw bears in, in straw, but there's the, these kind of conical costumes where the person is hidden inside this big structure of straw. And exactly, Jack in the Green is the same thing, but with leaves and sometimes flowers. So it's all, again, a celebration of spring and a celebration of the new life of the growing and the returning of life to the landscape. What Porter's reporting about is that it would often be a local sweep, a chimney sweep. He would be within this arrangement of... Because he was used to being in confined spaces, I suppose. It seems to be that it was, she specifically says it was a, a holiday for the chimney sweeps. I've definitely seen some Morris or Morley dancing in which brooms are involved. Right. And I wonder if that's a similar... That the sweeps had a, a tradition. Yeah. Other sweeps that weren't inside the Jack in the Green outfit would also take part in the procession, often with top hats on. And it was seen as a day that the chimney sweeps could kind of call in favours and ask for money. And the same as the straw bear that people that yeah. would go around the town kind of asking for money and food and that kind of thing. And the Jack in the Green would have flowers, branches, leaves... Their legs had bells all attached so yeah. that they could jingle along with the, the molly dancers, cha-ching, 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 through the village. A procession of dancers would come behind them, everyone just having a high old time, probably drinking. Yeah, probably. If I know Morris dancers. Yeah, and chimney sweeps. <laughs> I've got to be honest, I don't know anything about chimney sweeps. No, my main knowledge is from Mary Poppins, and I assume that's not very accurate. <laughs> and Jack in the Green is by no means specific to Melbourne or to East Anglia. No, because I think there's a big Hastings Jack in the Green festival. Yeah. And it uh, stretches back into the 1700s, and it seems to have developed from an earlier custom in which milkmaids decorated their pails with leaves and flowers. And if we think again of the straw bear... It's like the plough. It's like the plough, so yeah. it's kind of almost whatever the tools of your trade are, they would be decorated as part of the celebration. Imagine doing that today. Gonna, <laughs> Just a keyboard. My, yeah, laptop keyboard with <laughs> some hawthorn. Uh, we should do it. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be hard to type. Or you, if you wore the Jack in the Green outfit and then you were just trying to like have a Zoom meeting or something, <laughs> but you were in a big cone of uh, I can flowers. Only and imagine leaves. my colleagues' faces <laughs> when I turn up at a Zoom meeting as a Jack in the Green. They'd say, "Turn the filter off," and you'd <laughs> rustle. You'd just rustle about. I jingle the bells on my legs. <laughs> They begin to suspect something was up. Yes, let's rule that out then. Yeah, and there's a Samuel Pepys, the oh, diarist. Yeah. There's an entry from Samuel Pepys's diaries from 1667, London, and that's where he talks about the milkmaids with the decorated pails. So that's kind of an early recording of a similar thing that then grew yeah. into. 
into the Jack and the Green. And there's also some commentary on this in a book called Folklore of Kent. And they say that during the 19th century, many sweeps left London and moved out to other places in the southeast, like Kent, and we can extrapolate East Anglia, and they kind of brought the the customs from these London chimney sweep kind of events out to the the provinces. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose you think of a kind of rural folklore, don't you? But actually what you're saying is that the rural folklore becomes entwined with very urban folklore. Yeah. And kind of generates its own thing. Yeah, so uh, the custom of Jack the Green kind of is observable around different parts of the UK and it's had perhaps predictably a bit of a revival in more recent years. So people have started doing the old Jack in the Green celebrations again and building the outfits and dancing about and that kind of thing. And Enid Porter comments, which was the same again, if you remember about the Straw Bear celebrations and Plough Monday, the 20th century saw a kind of a rise in disapproval of these kinds of bawdy, ribald, drunken events. So it started to kind of peter out a bit then. And probably wasn't revived until the kind of early 70s or something. Yeah, when there was the kind of the folk yeah, revival. revival of interest, yeah. Now, just a small note on cowslips. Okay. So we're learning a lot about plants today. Well, we're learning a, a small amount about specific plants today. And, and, and nothing really very practical. <laughs> no, nothing practical. Only about slow gins. Cowslips were one of the most popular plants to be included in in the garlands of May Day because they were an early flower. The yellow colour is obviously quite appealing. Near us, Trumpington Meadows, there's like, at the moment, it's just covered in cowslips. Right. They're described as having like nodding heads, so this kind of drooping, similar to a bluebell, I suppose, that kind mm. of nodding thing that when the wind comes through, they'll kind of nod in the wind. And I learned that cowslips have lots of different names. Enid Porter calls them, in, in the book I was reading, she calls them peagles, oh. which was... It led me to a confusing time on Google because peagles as a name for cowslips is very uncommon these days. And peagles as the name for a crossbreed of dog is very common. So So a beagle and a poodle? That's what I thought. It's a beagle and a Pekingese. Oh, right. Yeah, I thought beagle and poodle. I thought that's exactly the kind of crossbreeding that people would be doing. But no, it's a Pekingese and a beagle. That's a peagle. So if you're thinking, oh, Enid Porter tells me that the villagers went out to pick peagles on May Day, (laughs) (laughs) it's not tiny dogs, it's cowslips. But they have lots of names in colloquial terms. Here's a few that I liked, especially freckled face, (laughs) golden drops, keys to heaven, ladies keys, Mm. milk maidens, Mm. pagel peggle. That's just words. Uh, and the Mayflower. Oh, yes. Not to be confused with the, the, Mayflower. the Mayflower. Well, and also there is a different plant, which is called the Mayflower, which has kind of pinkish flowers. And, yeah, so some fun different names for the old cowslip. Because cowslip, I've always thought it's not a very grand name, but I suppose they're not a very grand flower. They're like a, a wild meadow flower, aren't they? Yeah, and it makes me think of cowpats, I'm afraid. Well... One thing I read, I think it was it was like on a plant website, said there's some supposition that the name was given because it was thought that they grew where cowpats had been. Right. So they kind of almost grew out of the... But I don't think that is true. So put cowpats out of your mind. Well, I stood on a cowpat once. I mean, we've all been there, I'm sure. Have you stood on one? I think I must have done, yeah. I stood on one as a child in the Lake District. Do you know the most galling thing? No, I don't know. I stood on it deliberately because I thought it was a nice flat stone. (laughs) 
I thought, oh, that stone, that nice that flat stone. How satisfying it will be to stand on Exactly. I thought it looked so inviting and then I stood on it and it was a cow pat and my foot slid out from under me and I fell on my bum. And then my dad and my sisters came over and they were like, what are you doing? And I was just crying on the ground because I thought I was going to stand on a nice flat stone but I slid over into a cow pat. (laughs) What a disaster. Do you want to move on to children's games? Okay. Why not, eh? Now, and this comes from WH Barrett. He's the author of Tales from the Fens. Oh, okay, yes. Published 1966. And he did a lot of work with Enid Porter, actually. And he was, again, a kind of oral historian. And he gathered together a lot of stories. He lived in Brandon Creek, which, again, I think we talk about Brandon Creek in an old episode, The Black Sheet. And he, yeah, he, there was a a pub at Brandon Creek, I think, where they had kind of almost not quite competitions, but storytelling events where people from all around would come and gather together by the fire in the pub and kind of tell old folklore and old tales and old kind of are they history or are they are they myth and he gathered a lot of these together in tales from the fence and he tells of a children's game called honey pots and it sounds really weird (laughs) (laughs) so i'm gonna set the scene for honey pots and it was played on may day although I reckon they would have played it other times. Cause You're not you going to be like, oh, we've got this brilliant game, but we're only going to yeah, play it one exactly. day a year. You can't stop children just playing honeypots whenever they want. So what happens is young boys and girls of the village would all form a big circle and they'd all squat down mm. and they'd hold their hands under their knees. So imagine it's a circle of children all squatted down with their hands under their knees. And then slowly they'd all begin to edge forward. So like squatted, kind of doing that funny waddling movement with their legs, shuffling forward, shuffling forward, shuffling into the centre of the circle towards each other ever, ever closer. Even once they reached each other, they didn't stop. They kept going, shuffling, shuffling, clambering, clambering. Sounds like lemmings. And then it would just turn into like a pile of scrambling, shrieking children (laughs) all shuffled in together on top of each other into the middle of this circle. And the aim of honeypots was that you had to scramble to the top of the pile. (laughs) (laughs) And upon reaching the top, you could declare yourself the king or queen of May. Oh, dear. (laughs) And to think that we, you know, criticise other uh, cultures for stampeding at religious festivals. (laughs) Well, I think it sounds quite fun. And also... I can just imagine it and it's also quite sinister just this shuffling circle of children like closer, closer, closer. Yeah, but you don't want to get to the centre too quickly, do you? What, in case you're at the bottom? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. For strategy, you'd want to wait until there are a few already there. But on the basis that you've got to keep moving, you'd have to be slow and... And then you'd be able to like ascend, ascend the, the pile of children to be become the Queen of May. And you had to keep your hands under your knees the entire time. So you couldn't haul yourself up. I think by the time it got to the scramble in the middle, I think the rules were probably lax. (laughs) I think it was became more of a free-for-all. Barrett reports that a lot of girls were forbidden from playing honeypots, partly because the effects of the game were rather ruinous on the clothing. There was quite a lot of like tearing and besmirching. But also because it often led to unladylike displaying of the underwear. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, Pee knickers hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, a lot of the girls weren't allowed to play honeypots for very long. Once, I suppose once they got of an age where it was thought unseemly Mm. to have your underwear on display. And nobody was allowed to wear trousers in those days. Honeypots was banned for the girls. What a shame. But I think fun, but sinister. I want to see that get in a folk film. Well, it's like clambering, clambering from the top of a pile of bodies, isn't it? What, through a, like in a battlefield where you're like, ah, let me out. Yeah, that was the whole thing of honeypots. (laughs) Get to the top. 
So that's fun. And then the final May Day folklore I want to tell of is also something from WH Barrett and it's quite different from all this other stuff that we've heard, which is mainly to do with celebrations and festivities and carnival kind of atmosphere. Barrett recounts that in the Fenlands around Ely and Littleport, there was a a pre-20th century belief that anyone who ventured out early on May Day morning would see the ghosts of all those who had been drowned in the rivers and dikes of the Mm -hmm. Fens. And he says that this meant that the lighter men who worked on the barges that travelled between Kingsland and Cambridge carrying goods through East Anglia were a suspicious bunch and they wouldn't go out on on May Day. Day. They wouldn't go out on May Day because they were spooked at the thought of seeing these drowned figures around the fens. Imagine it. So that's the last story of May Day from East Anglia. I'm not by any means saying that this is exhaustive. I'd say far from it. It's just a tiny peep, but it's just a few interesting May Day stories for us to hear. Leaving it on a haunting note. Yeah, a haunting note. Well, in that case, I think it's about time we went and rewatched The Wicker Man. <laughs> what do you think? There's just a few hours of May Day left. Just a few hours, got to get The Wicker Man in. Yeah, we've missed sunset. Wow. Next year, let's time it exactly. So the point <laughs> at which the Wicker Man's head falls is at the hour of sunset. We're actually recording this on May Day, but it's going to reach you on few days May Day Bank Holiday. May Day Bank Holiday. So you can enjoy the ideas. And uh, next year, let's all play honeypots. <laughs> let's get a massive gang together. <laughs> play honeypots. Yep. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. I hope you have a lovely bank holiday weekend, or I hope you have had a lovely bank holiday weekend. The good thing about May is not too long till Whitson. So we've got another one to come before too long. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye.